Section 3 of Unaddressed Letters by Anonymous, edited by Frank Athelstain Swettenham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eva Davis. West and East One night, in the early months of this year, I sat at dinner next to a comparatively young married woman, of the type that is superlatively blonde in color and somewhat over-ample in figure. She was indifferently dressed, not very well informed, but apparently anxious, by dint of much questioning, to improve her knowledge where possible. She was, I believe, a journalist. Someone must have told her that I had been in the East, and she, like most stay-at-home people, evidently thought that those who go beyond the shores of England can only be interested in, or have an acquaintance with, the foreign country wherein they have sojourned. Therefore the lady fired at me a volley of questions about the manners and habits of the Malay people, whom she always referred to as savages. I ventured to say she must have a mistaken, or at any rate incomplete knowledge of the race, to speak of Malays as savages, but she assured me that people who were black and not Christians could only be as she described them. I declined to accept that definition, and added that Malays are not black, I fancy she did not believe me, but she said it did not matter, as they were not white and wore no clothes. I am afraid I began to be almost irritated, for the long waits between the courses deprived me of all shelter from the rain of questions and inconsequent remarks. At last, I said, it may surprise you to hear that these savages would think, if they saw you now, that you are very insufficiently clad and I added, to try to take the edge off a speech that I felt was inexcusably rude. They considered the ordinary costume of white men so immodest as to be almost indecent. Indeed, said the lady, who only seemed to hear the last statement, I have often thought so too, but am surprised that savages, for I must call them savages, should mind about such things. It was hopeless, and I asked how soon the great American people might be expected to send a force to occupy London. I have just been reminded of this conversation. A few days ago, I wrote to a friend of mine, a Malay sultan, whom I have not seen for some months, a letter inquiring how he was, and saying I hope soon to be able to visit him. Now comes his answer, and you who are in sympathy with the East will be able to appreciate the missive of this truculent savage. In the cover there were three enclosures, a formal letter of extreme politeness written by a scribe, the Arabic characters formed as precisely and clearly as though they had been printed. Secondly, a letter written in my friend's own hand, also in the Arabic character, but the handwriting is very difficult to decipher. And thirdly, there is another paper headed Hidden Secrets, written also in the Sultan's own hand. The following is a translation of the beginning of the second letter. At the top of the first page is written, Our friendship is sealed in the inmost recesses of my heart. Then this, I send this letter to my honored and renowned friend. Here follow my name, designation, and some conventional compliments. The letter then continues, You, my dear friend, are never out of my thoughts, and they are always wishing you well. I hear that you are coming to see me, and for that reason my heart is exceeding glad. As though the moon had fallen into my lap, 
or I had been given a cluster of flowers grown in the garden called Benjerana Sri, wide opening under the influence of the sun's warm rays. May God the Most Mighty hasten our meeting, so that I may assuage the thirst of longing and the happy realization of my affectionate and changeless regard. At the moment of writing, by God's grace and thanks to your prayers, I and my family are in good health, and this district is in the enjoyment of peace. But the river is in flood and has risen so high that I fear for the safety of the bridge. There is more, but what I have quoted is enough to show you the style. When the savage has turned from his savagery, he will write, Dear Sir, and Yours Truly. His correspondence will be typewritten in English, and the flaxen-haired lady will remark with approval that the writer is a businessman and a Christian, and hardly black at all. Whilst the Malays are still in my mind, it may interest you to know that they have a somewhat original form of verse in four-line stanzas, each stanza usually complete in itself, the second and fourth lines rhyming. The last two lines convey the sense, while the first two are only introduced to get the rhythm, and often mean nothing at all. Here are some specimens which may give you an idea of these pantun, as they are called, though in translating them, I have made no attempt to give the necessary jingle. A climbing bean will gain the roof. The red hibiscus has no scent. All eyes can see a house on fire. No smoke the burning heart betrays. Hark the flutter of the death's head moth. It flies behind the headman's house. Before the Almighty created Adam, our destinies were already united. This is the twenty-first night of the moon, the night when women die in childbirth. I am but as a captive songbird, a captive bird in the hand of the fowler. If you must travel far upriver, search for me in every village. If you must die while I yet linger, wait for me at the gate of heaven. One of the fascinations of letter-writing is that one can wander at will from one subject to another, as the butterflies flutter from flower to flower. But I suppose there is nearly always something that suggests to the writer the sequence of thought, though it might be difficult to explain exactly what that something is. I think the reference in the above stanzas to Adam and the gate of heaven, or paradise, have suggested to me the snake. And even in paradise, devise the snake. Which reminds me that last night I said to the ancient and worthy person to whom is entrusted the care of this house, Leave the drawing room doors open while I am at dinner. The room gets overheated. Then he, I not likely to open the doors because plenty snakes. Snakes? Where? Outside, plenty snakes. Leave doors open, come inside. What sort of snakes? Long snakes, stretching out his arm to show the length. Short snakes, measuring off about a foot with the other hand. Have you seen them? Yes, plenty. This is cheerful news, and I inquire. Where? In bedrooms? When? Sometimes daytime, sometimes nighttime. An even pleasanter prospect but I am still full of unbelief. Have you seen them yourself? Yes, I kill. 
But when and how was it? One time master not here, lady staying here. Daytime I kill one long snake here, this room. Nighttime lady call me, I kill one short snake in bedroom. Which bedroom? Master's bedroom. That is not exactly reassuring, especially when you like to leave your doors and windows open and sleep in the dark. I thank him, and he goes away, having entirely destroyed my peace of mind. The wicked old man. I wish I could have seen his face as he went out. Now I go delicately, both daytime and nighttime, above all at nighttime, and I am haunted by the dread of the plenty long snake, plenty short snake. In one's bedroom, too, it is a gruesome idea. If I had gone on questioning him, I dare say he would have told me he killed a plenty long snake inside the bed, trying to warm itself under the bedclothes in this absurdly cold place. I always thought this a paradise, but without the snake. Alas, how easily one's cherished beliefs are destroyed. It is past midnight, the moon is full, and looking down, resplendent in all her majesty, bathes everything in a silver radiance. I love to go and stand in it, but the verandas are full of ferns, roses, and honeysuckle twine round the pillars. The shadows are as dark as the lights are bright, and everywhere there is excellent cover for the long snake and the short snake. Perhaps bed is the safest place after all, and tomorrow, well, Tomorrow, I can send for a mongoose. End of section three.